Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. That's something a little different this time for opening. That is music from the soundtrack of one of the movies that we're going to be talking about, The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman from 1971 by Anton Abril. Had trouble finding any that were clever variations of our titles, so I just went right to the source, and uh, we're listening to some of the music from the movie. That's kind of apropos, because Paul Nashi is just a little difficult to find sometimes and it's just a little bit different so that immediately sets us on the right course spoiler that's one of our movies should we go ahead and say what the other one is yes it is it's paul nashy november nashy november 2 something along those lines our halloween season is behind us but it is halloween 12 months out of the year here at classic horse club podcast this month take a look at a couple of paul nashy films yes we are taking a look at the werewolf Versus the Vampire Woman from 1971. And our second film is Inquisition from 1977. This is our first episode back in our regular format. So it could be a little bit rusty. Like we're how far in already? Well, I guess this is normal. We always do this. We don't introduce ourselves. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Let's call the meeting to order. This is normal, but it's not a normal episode because we still have a guest. That's true. That's yeah, true. We, we've got a special guest joining us for one of the two movies. The Ghost of Paul Nashi. <laughs> yes, the Ghost of Paul Nashi. You know, there's a lot of, of wonderful Paul Nashi experts out there. We have chosen uh, Mr. Stephen D. Sullivan, author at large, award-winning author, Man About Town. He's going to join us for offering up his thoughts on the werewolf versus the vampire woman. If we have time, the tape might run out before we list the names of all of our new members. We got a flood of new members on our Facebook group page, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. We want to welcome them verbally here. Hopefully we got everyone on the actual Facebook page, but this is just wonderful to see so many new people joining us for the conversation and the fun. If the trend continues, and I hope that it does, we'll probably have a few more members by the time this episode goes out, and we'll mention and give you a shout out in our December episode. Yes, and we reached a milestone this month, didn't we? We did. We hit the 300 member mark, and and it kind of like it came and went very quickly because... We were at this number, and I think I talked to you and said, hey, we're closing in on 300. We should do something. And then like two days later, we're at 303. And then it kept on going. Why don't you kick it off, Richard? Who's our first person to welcome? All right. A hearty welcome to Arthur Scott King. Fraser Gray. Michael Giorgi. 
By the way, I did give you all the hard ones to pronounce. Thank you. Yeah. Mike DeMarco. Mike LeBlanc. Ryan Joseph Murphy. House of Silent Graves. This is Dominique Lamsey's. She's opened up her House of Silent Graves again. She is officially joined in more than one capacity. Chris George. Chris Schalk. Cody Witt. Lamont Turner. Steve Polonis. John Hazard. Chris McMillan. Welcome, Chris. Yes, I already gave him a little bit of a hard time, like, just now joining? Where have you been? <laughs> Did we say Wayne Llewellyn? No. Okay. Did we say Mark Gallagher? Or, excuse me, Mike Gallagher? I don't know. we got so many names. Kevin Kyer or Kayer? Mark Servers. Reno Sakata. Donald Scott. Ken Johnson. Michaela Stormer. Jeremy Glass. Trash Panda. Okay, I'll pause. When I saw Trash Panic, I'm like, okay, this has got to be spam. But they do have monster stuff on their page. So if anybody sees any suspicious activity with Trash Panda that looks like spam, please give me alert. However, if you are Trash Panda and listening, please shout out and let us know that you are a real person or a real panda. Yeah, that name is so familiar to me, but I can't for the life of me think who it is. Love that we have someone called Trash Panda. That's exactly Kevin Zumwalt. Bob Kurtz. Miles McGrath. And I'm out of names, so we must have... We have one more team. And and I've saved this for last. Kayla Latta. Kayla is my daughter. She is actually doing our Instagram page. We have an Instagram page. Classic Horrors Club podcast, all one word, lowercase, however that works in the Instagram world. She has been wanting to do the social media side, originally for my site many years ago. And I was just resistant because like, I just want to do my blog. I don't want to get into social media and do all the promotion stuff. Kayla's been my number one fan since my very first voicemail on Cinema Slave, hosted by Joe Barlow way back in 2006. I played her my segment on the show on iTunes, on the computer, in my office, and she's sitting, and I'm trying to think. At that point, she would have been so young. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to do the math in my head. She thought it was the coolest thing that dad was on iTunes. This past couple of weeks, she was listening to the podcast in her car, so to get some info to post on Instagram, and... My grandson Jensen was in the back seat, and he just thought that was the coolest thing that Grandpa was on the radio. That makes me smile. She's just throwing some fun stuff out there about the various episodes. That's really focused on the podcast. Jeff and I both have Instagram pages that we do for our own thing, whether it's blog-related or movie-related. This is specifically for the podcast. Thank you, Kayla, for joining the club. Yes, thanks, Kayla. I love what you've done so far, and I'm really looking forward to our numbers increasing exponentially due to the Instagram page. No pressure. (laughs) You've got a family member that's your number one fan. You know that I do as well. That's my brother, Jay. So quick shout out to him and my mom in Sacramento. They've had some ups and downs, but I'm going to go out there in a couple weeks and whip them into shape. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. I hope everyone enjoys it. Hi, Jeff's brother. Hi, Jeff's mom. 
Richard, we have some feedback this month. This is a voicemail sent to us by our dear friend, Bill Mize. Hello, my Rich, and hello, my Jeff. It's your boy, the former podcaster known as Bill Mize. And I'm calling in because I just got through listening to your recent episode on Reptilicus and Godzilla versus the Thing. And I really have to say it was one of your best episodes, in my not-so-humble opinion. I loved the first part where you two were deliberately and furtively trying to find logic within Reptilicus, but it looks like you failed to do so, so there you go. Regarding Reptilicus, as you were talking about it, I could have sworn on a stack of Bibles prior to doing any sort of research. uh, Once I got back home, I was out in the car listening to it. I could have swore that Reptilicus got a Criterion Collection release. And as you were talking about physical media and places to get it, I'm like, why aren't they mentioning the Criterion Collection release? Well, that's because you're better at research than I am, and it actually does not exist. So, Criterion, let's get on that and fix that mistake. Another wonderful, wonderful part of this show was my boy Steve Turek coming on as a special guest. Now, the three of us have gathered together at Monster Bash several times, and Steve knows I love him, and the fact that we haven't managed to record our show together yet over at the Diecast Movie Podcast is my fault entirely. So I do apologize to Steve on that publicly. I loved his take on the kaiju movies, and as someone who grew up watching Championship Wrestling from Florida with Gordon Soley and my boy Dusty Rhodes, The American Dream, and all the rest. I love his wrestling comparisons. I think that Steve and I, next Monster Bash, need to sit down and talk about wrestling, as we're going to call it. Again, a wonderful episode. Thank you, too, for everything that you do for all us monster kids out there. I love you too. I'll talk to you soon. Until next time, everybody take care and God bless. Mr. Bill Myers, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, this loved your voicemail. And yes, indeed, we must talk professional wrestling. The next time we get together, you're going to get funky like a monkey, if you will. Okay, wrestling fans might be out there knowing that I, I what I'm doing and the rest of you think I have truly lost my mind. Perhaps I have. In any case, Bill, thank you for responding, sending us a voicemail. Good to hear from you. Rich, I'm still a little speechless after that performance, and I think maybe you could swap that for the singing of the club today, because that just might be a little too much. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. I do want to say that Bill isn't doing his movie podcasts right now. He's gone into a, a whole new world that I have no experience of, and that's tabletop gaming, I think, is maybe what it's called. Role-playing something. Call of Cthulhu. It's a role-playing game. It's like Dungeons & Dragons. I actually played Call of Cthulhu back in the 80s for a brief period of time. Uh, my good friend at the time, Eric Becker, was the dungeon master, if you will. 
it's still a thing all these years later. So I've watched a, a few of his videos, very brief, my gaming experience, but it was a very fond memory. And I look back now and I'm like, I could have saved some brain cells and partied less and played some Call of Cthulhu. And that would have been much more productive. There's a part of me that's like, man, I, I almost wouldn't mind getting involved in something like that. After all these years, it'd be kind of fun. He did also a flip through or or something when he received the new Scary Monsters magazine. And I, wa- I did watch that video. It was very interesting. I hope he does more things like that with more things that I'm interested in. <laughs> I picked up my copy of Scary Monsters this past week. We should give a shout out to you, sir, because you are not just once, but twice in this particular issue. It's a horror hag issue. It's one of my favorite subgenres. I wrote on two sort of lesser films that are hagsploitation that came after whatever happened to Baby Jane. One with Betty Davis, one with Jim Crawford. Dead Ringer with Betty Davis and Straight Jacket with Joan Crawford. I also did one on maybe a lesser known hagsploitation that people don't recall. Elizabeth Taylor did one, sort of, called Nightwatch. I love the fact that you're being published in Scary Monsters because it's much easier for me to get than We Belong Dead. Although, (laughs) We Belong Dead is now available through Amazon and it has made it much easier. Bill was able to leave that voicemail by recording on whatever recording device he uses, I'm guessing a phone, and then sending us that file. And he sent it via email, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. He could have cut out the middleman, though, and just simply called 616-649-2582. 616649. Love, baby. Perfect. That was excellent. Glad <laughs> you did that. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> we have a device that will record it for you. So just, just call and leave us that message. I want to remind people also to check out our video companion. We have a YouTube channel at Classic Horrors TV. You'll find some type of video that accompanies this podcast. It's not a repeat of it, but it's just supplemental material. Think about it as your bonus features, if you will, if we were a Blu-ray. If we were a Blu-ray, Rich, what company would release us? Would it be Shout? Would it be Mondo Macabro? I'm thinking Mondo or Severin. Maybe Severin. Mondo's a little more on the edge. Sometimes we're kind of mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I thought of that. Let's, what do we do now? Oh, we take a break, right? We thank everyone for listening. And then we (laughs) come back and we talk about our first movie, right? Uh, That's the way it usually works. All right. Well, let's do that. A search for an ancient tomb of a witch takes a beautiful young girl on a mission that brings her to a house of madness. She is innocent of the dangers that surround her. The storm that rages outside is an omen of the reign of terror about to begin. A strange tale of the unknown world. A world of fear where the supernatural exists. Werewolf Shadow. The full moon of the Valpurgis night brings the vampires from their graves. The early sunrise drives them back to sleep in their tombs. Vampire versus werewolf in a battle to the death. See the werewolf terrorize the countryside. 
blood revives a 400-year-old vampire witch. A strange love story that is destined to end in tragedy. A madwoman seeks revenge from all who come to the hidden valley. A policeman finds superstition and ignorance, creating a dead end to his investigation of the village's mysterious disappearances and deaths. Werewolf Shadow. No one can escape the vampires. Nothing can stop them. See the deadly curse that can only be destroyed by a loved one. Werewolf Shadow. The full moon gives power to the living dead. A beautiful young girl destroyed by evil forces. A stolen moment of love before death is to strike. A co-production of Hi-Fi Stereo and Plata Films. See vampires kill in their quest for blood. Blood, the essence of the living dead. See this film, if you dare. When two doctors remove silver bullets from his heart, werewolf Valdemar Daninsky is revived. When two co-eds remove a silver cross from her heart, the vampire Countess Lindessa is revived. That's two monsters roaming the countryside, with their numbers growing, and only Daninsky's true love able to set his soul free. But first, Walpurgis Nacht approaches, and there's going to be some werewolf on vampire woman action. Rich, we have a very special guest with us today to talk about our first movie, and that is author Stephen D. Sullivan. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, hey, it's great to be here, guys. Great great to see you again. You know, we haven't really seen each other during the whole crazy pandemic thing. So now that we're endemic, <laughs> I guess we can see each other again. Yes, it has been, I'm thinking, four years. Monster Bash 2019. Last we actually saw each other in the real world. Yeah. And Steve, I'm aware that you are a Nashi aficionado, but you know, I don't think I've ever heard how that came to be or what your interest is. So you want to just give us a little bit of your background? He's someone whose films I have been aware of, but not as kind of the strange, wonderful auteur, director, writer, actor, star that I, I and probably we know him as today. And somewhere along the time about when um, Derek Cook was starting Monster Kid Radio and uh, Rod and Troy were doing the Nashi cast, suddenly the light bulb went on over my little head. And it's like, oh, you mean all those weird, random Euro Wolfman movies that I was watching in really terrible public domain prints? Those are all the same guy? Wow. <laughs> and I'm a huge Wolfman fan as. You may know from from past discussions, the Wolfman is one of my favorite Universal monsters. It's probably second after the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's still very high up on my list and always has been. 
when I found out this guy had made like 12 Wolfman films, one guy is the the same Wolfman more or less the whole time. I thought, well, I have to find out more about this. And and there were Rod and Troy <laughs> usher me into the wonderful world of Nashi. And I found out, oh, he did Horror Rises from the Tomb, too. And then, then it all started to click. And then I became, of course, obsessed with seeing all the Wolf, Nashi Wolfman films, El Hombre Lobo, Valdemar Daninsky. And I've never looked back since. My love of him has only grown the more I knew about his work and the more I got to see actual good prints of the movies, which is a real boon. I was watching the movie we're going to talk about today with my friend David Annandale this week, and he had never seen a good print of it before. And he was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, you see it the way it's intended. You see it in Spanish and you see it with a print that you can actually see things and without the weird scenes that are cut out by the projection is to take them home and hang them on the wall. It makes a real big difference. I had the same thought when I watched the movie this week, when it started, I'm like, okay, this is so crystal clear compared to what I remember. It's like, is my memory of the, of the old, was it really that bad? And after I watched the film, I did go back just to plug in the public domain print. And I'm like, yes, yes, it really was <laughs> really that bad. This latest uh, release from uh, Vinegar Syndrome really is a night and day release. Tell list people who are listening, stop right now. If you watch the public domain print, you need to seek out the, the Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome, watch it, and then jump back in and listen to our discussion. It's a little, little more for this Blu-ray because it's got two different versions of the film, and, and Vinegar Syndrome is just, I think, a tad pricier. And it's definitely worth adding if you are even getting into Nashi. This is one of his best films, in my opinion. And I think, generally speaking, a, a lot of Nashi fans feel the same way that this is one of his one of his better films. Right, Troy Haworth in his uh, he has a great book about Nashi called Human Beasts. I don't know if you guys have it, but I highly recommend it. And as I was reviewing it last night before we were going to talk today. He says that, and I think rightly, that this is the turning point in Nashi's career. This is the, the point where suddenly everything he was doing before gets better, smarter, and better produced. And the quality of the films from here on out is really, really very good until it hits the point in the, the 70s and early 80s where no one wants to fund what he's doing anymore. And then he starts doing bit parts in, in other people's films and stuff. But this is a benchmark. Frankenstein's Bloody Terror was the first. And so the one we're talking about, Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, is the fifth one. He did 12 of these things, plus four or five other Wolfman appearances that aren't Valdemar Donitsky. Yeah. These aren't sequels. There's not a continuing story. Some of them may or may not be. So, Steve or Rich, do you know, is this one, technically, does it pick up from one of the previous ones or not? Technically, they're all separate. But, as you guys know, and we might as well mention now, I am working on a, an official Paul Nashi werewolf book, a new novel using the Valdemar Doninsky character that is licensed from, from his family. And in order to do that book, I wanted to 
kind of Marvel Universe the background and figure it all out. And I did manage to get it down to where instead of having 12 Wolfmen, there are like four, maybe five. They couldn't all be one because they're all spread across different ages and eras. There's some in, that are in the medieval era and that kind of stuff. In theory, in my head, this could be the same Wolfman from the first film, uh, Mark of the Wolfman or Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, and then the, the second film, uh, Assignment Terror or Dracula versus Frankenstein. Or all of these films have like a half a million names. Yes. This yes. one, we're calling it Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman because that's the name that makes the most sense to a US audience. It was on DVD as Werewolf Shadow, I think. The real title is uh, La Noche de Walpurgis, which is Walpurgis Night, if you translate it into English. But I don't think it's ever been shown <laughs> in the English-speaking world with the original title just translated straight up, because it doesn't say Wolfman, and you got to have Wolfman or Werewolf or something in there to sell it in the U.S. And They're not the same Wolfman, except for in four or five. Are they even descendants of another? I mean, is there a way to expand it and connect them that way, where the medieval one is the ancestor of one of the more modern ones yes but even with that there are some weird crossovers and stuff the story of this film werewolf versus the vampire woman he tells again in almost the exact same form in a later film one of the other really really good films which i think is called night of the wolfman now there's so many titles <laughs> I have, to, I have to look them up to keep them all straight. They're never actually the titles that the original Spanish film would have had. Yeah, it's Return of the Wolfman, otherwise known as The Craving. <laughs> when we started getting into the cast, I've got some film titles that are some of the best you'll ever hear. Film titles that are just absolutely crazy and are just fun to read. I don't know how many spaghetti westerns are particularly good with some of the the crazy titles. I kind of have an interesting story about watching this. So, Rich, you asked me when I had seen it before, was it this Blu-ray version? I said, oh, yeah. Well, I went to get it off the shelf, still wrapped in plastic. So, no, it was not the version I originally saw. And I usually have this thing, Steve, where... I feel like some films are actually better in their bad cuts, their grainy, that adds to the sort of sleaziness or something. Right, that the grindhouse look. cut. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I get that. That that certainly can be but true. This is a, the opposite is true with this because it's like I had never seen the movie before. And I had my notes from when I watched it the first time. And there are some odd differences. And I don't know if you can just attribute it to the dubbing versus the subtitling, but as we go through, I might kind of point some of those out. Uh, the most obvious one was the opening after the introduction and the credits. I'll never forget this in the public domain or whatever version I watched. I hate when they do this, but TV shows do it. They'll show clips of what's coming up in the movie that we haven't seen yet. <laughs> and what is all behind the credits. And seeing it on this version on Blu-ray, I know why, because... They didn't want to see a bare breast with blood running. Yeah. Flash forwards. They worked in the Rockford files, but not too many other places. Was that a good idea? I think when they do like the English dubs too, it's like sometimes they change names, which can throw you off because if, if you've seen the English dub and someone else hasn't, you may mention a name and they're like, oh, I don't remember anyone by that name in the movie. Sometimes, you know, it's just the language difference. Sometimes there really is no logic behind it. 
sometimes that dubbing can have significant impact on the story. And an example I thought of here was when Pierre takes. Yeah, it's Elvira, probably. Right. When he takes her to town to get gas so they can leave. The first one, I had notes that he just kind of rambles about nothing. And he talks about her long red hair and how beautiful it is and all yeah, of this. Like a real creeper then, speech, as I remember. Later, I think, doesn't he grab her later and say, now I've got you or something? It sort of made sense that yes. he had that exposition that he had lecherous thoughts about her. In this, he gives more history of the house and why the people think it's haunted. There's nothing about him having any interest. And then when he grabs her, I think, don't we assume it's because he's under the influence of the vampire? Yes, and I noticed that too. I was like, wait, I thought he was kind of being a creepy rapist here. But in the original dub, he's under the spell of Wandessa, the, the vampire woman. That's a really different take on what's happening to... I feel so much worse for Pierre now. <laughs> but it's a good point, because now there's sympathy towards him, right? I mean... Right. Yeah, if you don't know that he's under control of the monsters, then he looks like a monster himself. And clearly, whoever was dubbing the English version decided that, I don't know, they either didn't get that, or it was too complicated they thought and so they went with the more cliche oh everyone you meet in these movies that's not the hero is a rapist thing which is kind of a euro horror thing a lot of the time let's talk yeah. about some of the monster action yes I, nashi's werewolf i don't know about always but many times looks very different even totally different type of makeup and everything but the, the one common thing is he drools like a running faucet i mean there is always <laughs> pouring out of his mouth sometimes it's bloody after a kill first transition scene we see there's that drool coming out of his mouth done very well with a lot of trick camera work he's behind something when he changes and when he gets up it's him but i think this has probably the best at the end transition scene i've seen when he returns to his human form you know those dissolves where it's really just right spots laid over and he goes from wolf to human but he does not bat an eyelash i mean he is still and it i think it was a terrific effect i also really like now going to the vampire side this the slow motion right uh, done that before in other movies but it never looks realistic to me because there are features of the composition of the scenes that kind of work against the slow motion here there's nothing it's just that so it seems very spooky and eerie and very effective and the one scene that there is somebody else i think it's just Nashy's standing at the end of the hall. We see his back. He's motionless. And we see the vampires dancing off in slow motion. Just works really, really well. The vampire slow-mo effect is a very eerie effect that doesn't look goofy or stupid or anything. It actually enhances the film. And if I remember right, the director on this is Klamowski, right? This was a happy accident that these two guys got together after Nash. He'd kind of been struggling with other directors who didn't kind of get his thing. And these two guys clicked. Klimovsky may not have been the greatest director, but he was willing to collaborate with Nashi and he was willing to really put his heart and soul in it. And it shows in the film. It's like good choices made throughout the film. It's wonderful that we had someone like Paul Nashi that was so devoted to horror and monsters that he spent his whole career 
doing this stuff or the greater part of his career playing werewolves and hunchbacks and Dr. Jekyll and, and mummies. No one did it since Lon Chaney Jr. probably, and no one has done it since that I can think of. Just dived into the Monster Kid stuff so fully and was completely committed to making as cool a picture as he could. Sometimes it is helpful to know a little more about the background of Nashi and what he was bringing to it and where he was coming from. Even things like character names. There are character names that he uses again and again in his stories. And one of them is Elvira, and that's because that was his wife's name. <laughs> Did either of you gentlemen see the the documentary extra that was on this set, The Man Who Saw Frankenstein Cry? Did you guys watch that? No, I haven't watched it yet. I thought I had seen it, but considering I just unwrapped the Blu-ray and I didn't watch it this time, I guess I haven't. <laughs> Highly recommend it. It gives Paul Nashie's background story, going back to his childhood and his parents and some of the craziness, of course, growing up in a dictatorial Spain and the impact that it had on his filmmaking and little decisions that if you didn't know the background behind it, you're like, okay, so this movie is supposed to be set in France, but clearly it doesn't really look like France other than the little segment in the beginning where you're seeing the Eiffel Tower, which is actually really just a postcard on a spinner rack. Part of that reason is because they were hindered. Apparently, the Spanish people at the time were very centered in reality. The concept of a werewolf being in Spain was something that, well, of course, that's not going to happen. We don't have them here in Spain. Werewolves aren't real. So if you're going to do a werewolf, you've got to put it in another country. And so that's why the movie is set in France. We just have that throwaway reference and then nothing else about it really looks like France. And, and that's second... why the Spanish werewolf has a Polish name. Exactly. You nicely passed that off as a cultural thing. But in fact, that is a fascist thing. Well, it they is. They were under fascist rule in Spain under Generalissimo Francisco Franco for all those years. And under the Generalissimo, nothing bad ever happened in Spain. And your hero couldn't be Spanish because that would be bad for Spain. And we see that kind of thing going on in North Korea and Russia and China today. Yeah. They're it's, under dictatorships, under fascism. You lose the ability to be creative to some extent. Or you have to say, well, see, this is the decadent Americans or the decadent Germans or the decadent yes. French. You can pawn it off on the local neighbors that your dictator doesn't like, but you can't have it happen in the dictator's own realm. Yeah, so they would do comedies. They would do musicals because that was happiness and joy, and you could do that. But it became so much of who they were that the fact that these movies even got made was in some ways a miracle because they were, yes, they were setting these characters in all these other countries, but they were doing things in these movies that the day-to-day -day real world, they couldn't do. We've gone on about it long enough that I think maybe we should at least mention <laughs> a little bit more about the story so people have some context. The story starts with Valdemar Daninsky, the, the werewolf dead on a slab in the morgue. A couple of police inspectors, one of whom's a coroner, I guess, scoffing that this poor guy has been shot by silver bullets 
boy, those superstitious peasants, they really don't know what they're doing. They think if we take these bullets out, this werewolf is going to come back to life. Ha 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 Well, uh, careful what you wish for, because of course they do take the bullets out. He revives, and we have the first of the bloody scenes in the story. And then we cut to France, where Elvira is with her goofy boyfriend, the policeman, who's Marcel, if I recall correctly. She and her friend Genevieve are going to France in order to track down a uh, Wandessa, the Elizabeth Bathory-like legendary character, to find her tomb and do, I guess they're doing research? Writing a thesis, I think. And naturally, they get out into the wilderness, they run out of gas, they run into Paul Nashi, who had been on a slab last time we saw him before he turned into a werewolf, who uh, invites them to stay with him until his, his handyman shows up and can take them into town, which is 20, 30 kilometers, 20 miles away, something like that. The translations between miles and kilometers get a little confusing at times. He's uh, you know handsome and charming, and they're a little concerned about him. But they hang out with him. They discover he's living with his mad sister, Elizabeth. <laughs> then things happen, you know, that would drive you and I away from there. And I love what Troy Howard said in the book, Steve, about they stay at the castle because they need to for the story. You know, right. they need to be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're a little wishy-washy on, in general, they're pretty consistent in Genevieve wants to leave and... Elvira wants to stay, but then yeah, I don't they know, switch back and they watching. switch back and forth. One of them wants to stay and one of them wants to leave. But in almost every scene, it switches which one is which. Yeah. Anyway, he's living with his his insane sister, who is harmless, though she does kind of molest both girls and scare the hell out of them and nearly kill one of them. Um, but but that's okay because he's such a nice guy and and they're trapped here at this point anyway. Eventually, with his help, they find the tomb. They foolishly revive the vampire, which they don't believe in, of course. They, hey, this is a nice silver cross in this uh, lady's heart. We should take that as a souvenir, right? <laughs> so I've got some questions here, and I know it's silly to nitpick on things like this, but the cross killed the vampire, and if they remove it, she'll come to life. But then the cross becomes the only instrument that can kill. The werewolf, right? The dub of this version of the story is streamlined in such a way that I didn't remember that the cross is actually part of a prophecy of how the werewolf can break its own curse. There's a point in the movie where Nashi's character with Valdemar is reading from a book or a scroll, I don't remember, where it's like, has a very specific recipe, how the werewolf's curse can be lifted and it involves this cross which is melted down from a, a holy chalice previously and now it's a cross with that you can stab people with it was used to kill the vampire and it's obviously good proof against bad stuff because Valdemar kills an undead monk with it and this is like a year or so before the the tombs of the blind dead came out so this is the like the first undead monk in european cinema maybe but yeah and like that's why i it, right it, well, because it's, it's, it looks cool it's yeah. a proof against evil at least to this point and and probably beyond it seemed like Nashi, who wrote this film too, we should we should have pointed that out early. He wrote it and he stars in it as the main character. 
when he was making these monster movies, it seemed like every time he was afraid he would never get to make another monster movie ever again. And so every one of them has way more stuff in it than it really needs. <laughs> and one of the things in this movie that's, do we really need this guy? Is the undead monk who menaces Elvira for a scene only to be com completely dispatched very quickly and never heard from or seen again. We hear rumors of him before and we get some history of him later. Here he is. Oh, he's dead. I've showed that the Silver Cross has powers against evil creatures. And now we're moving on. We're not going to mention that again. <laughs> so the Silver Cross had no significance in being able to kill the vampire because what does kill her at the end? I know she fights with Daninsky and he kills her, but like it's not sunlight coming in. It's not a wooden stake to the heart. He just kind of kills her. <laughs> right. Well, I have a theory about that. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> and if you've read Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, where I have a werewolf and a vampire battle in that, my theory is always that supernatural creatures can harm each other, even when we can't harm them with anything other than a special thing. So you need silver bullets for a werewolf. But if you're a vampire, you can kill a werewolf. If you're a werewolf, you can kill a vampire because it's supernature against. That's my theory. I like that. I totally buy yeah, it. That's a good theory. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it holds through with most of Nashi's films. I don't know if he ever set that down as a precept. But in terms of human beings, they staked her with the cross because that was enough to break her evil powers back in the uh, medieval period she comes from. And Vondessa is a, she's clearly an Elizabeth Bathory character. We have the sister named Elizabeth here. In case you didn't get it. She's Bathory. We're naming this one the sister after Bathory as well. We get her killed with it initially, but then that allows us to come forward into the prophecy. Are there any historical relationship between Daninsky and his ancestors and the countesses? When the girls first tell him what they're doing, he's got a look on his face. I just always thought, well, he knows who she is. He's I even, I don't know where I got the fa thought that even his ancestors were responsible for her death, which I don't think is the case, but. That's I, not spelled out in this movie. Certainly there are future werewolf movies that he does where there is an explicit connection between the Valdemar's ancestors and the terrible countess. All the pieces are there, but sometimes you can't get it on one watch through and sometimes you blink and you miss it sometimes. I wanted to comment about the makeup work, Jeff. You had mentioned something earlier about that. The makeup work was by Jose Luis Morales. And apparently, from what I can recall as well, having seen some of the previous versions of The Werewolf, this is definitely improvement. It looks better. Jeff, you talked about the transition sequence was an improvement. The Werewolf looks really good in this movie. Most of the time. I wish they'd done something with his nose. Because it's like a human nose covered with hair. I wish they... Yeah, that's true. Even the a little, you know, Jack Pierce blacken the end of the nose or flare the nostrils or something. I wish there was something a little more there. The werewolf makeup is wildly inconsistent throughout the movies. Some of the films after aren't as good as this. It, it's a roller coaster ride. Yeah. I also noted here the music by Garcia Abril. I thought it was really good. Atmospheric at times. Also a little inconsistent. Sometimes it, it seemed to be more effective than others. 
And I'm just going to chop that up to editing. I don't know that they spent a lot of time editing these films. I think once they got done, wrapped up, they kind of pieced it together and hoped that the film had an audience, which... um, (laughs) This one did. This one made a fortune. This one did. This one was very successful for him. You've got good makeup. You've got good music. This movie had reached an audience. Yeah, there's the dubbed version, which isn't nearly as good, but it did hit the U.S. and became popular enough that it gave Nashi an outlet, really, in the U.S. for some of his films to hit, whether it was the drive-in circuit or the grindhouse, whatever, his films were finding an audience in the States and that played a part. The success of the films allowed him to continue to make the films that he was making to continue to get the funding. The bloody sequence with Daninsky with the blood dripping down. He's, I think it was with Pierre. He had killed Pierre. Very graphic. Troy Howard in his book said this is probably one of the most graphic images from any Spanish or Euro horror film from the 70s. It is a pretty graphic sequence, but effective. Absolutely. It shows the more animalistic side of the werewolf, which we didn't always get. Obviously, if you go back to the Lon Chaney films, which I love, but obviously that time period, you were going to have blood dripping out of the mouth of Lon Chaney. (laughs) All the killings are off screen because he could come in and put his hands around your throat and then we're going to cut. Yeah, exactly. No, the Nashi's literally going for the throat and you're going to see the blood because he's rebelling against the fascist government in Spain in a way and trying to push the boundaries as much as he can in order to achieve his vision at this point. And it's working for him and it's great. In terms of the plot, so once we get the vampires resurrected, we get her turning other people into vampires and people get killed and then eventually the werewolf and the vampire fight each other. For those of you that were looking for a a finished summary of the plot, I love the fact that they don't give us the werewolf origin in here. It's just, we start with a werewolf on a slab, we take the bullets out, then he mentions later on, the angry townsfolks had killed him and that's how he ended up dead. Then he ended up moving further out into the countryside, and now he's facing angry villagers again, maybe because he's a werewolf, but maybe because they're superstitious idiots. It's never really clear. But then, in this version at least, you get a parallel between him being persecuted by townsfolks and Wandessa being persecuted and killed by townsfolks. Rich, did you have anything from the cast or crew that we would recognize? I went with some of the film credits of some of the titles that people would recognize. The character of Elvira, Gabby Fuchs was the actress who played Elvira. Not a lot of credits, 18 films, but a couple that caught my attention. She was in Mark of the Devil, but the two of the films that definitely stood out, very typical for this time period. We have The New Adventures of Snow White, which i fairly certain was not a Disney film, and Around the World with Fanny Hill. So, <laughs> some of these titles, you know, over these, of course, these two films, I just, I love. Barbara Capel played the character of Genevieve. 21 films, none that really stood out. Andre Rosino, Andres Rosino played Marcel. Murder Mansion. Yelena Samarina as Elizabeth Daninsky, Malamar's sister. Murder Mansion, she was also in that one, Daughter of Dracula, The Silence of the Tomb, which was a 
Jess Franco film. Jose Marco played the character of Pierre. Some of his film credits include The Horrible Sexy Vampire, Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf, Fury of the Wolfman, and Horror Express. Of course, a Cushing Lee classic. The only other cast member that I pulled was Patty Shepard playing the Countess. Definitely some Nashy films. She was in Assignment Terror. Also in The Killer is One of 13, which is a 73 film that has Paul Nashy in a small role. It's not him in a prominent role. Crypt of the Living Dead was another film credit. She was also in a lot of spaghetti westerns. The movie was written by Paul Nashy. Also credited to a Hans Munkel. I think it may have been in Troy's book. I read not. I read somewhere else that it doubtful that I'm not even sure if Hans Munkel is real a real person. If so, because <laughs> it only one other credit on IMDb. I think the name might have just been thrown out there to appease the German investors, because that's what I read somewhere, and that makes total sense. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes perfect sense. Directed by Leon Klamowski, 76 credits on IMDb, including some wonderful titles. We have A Few Dollars for Django, A Bullet for Rommel, Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf, Dracula, Saga, Vengeance of the Zombies, Vampire's Night, Orgy, A Dragonfly for Each Corpse, and this one has to be one of the best titles of the day. Raise your hands, dead man, you're under arrest. (laughs) (laughs) A number of those are Nashi films, I should point out, but not Raise Your Hands, Dead Man, You're Under Arrest. Yes. Yes. I've always loved this movie, but this viewing has made it one of my favorite Nashi films. I highly recommend it. In my opinion, best starting off point, if you're going to enter the world of Nashi's Valdemir Daninsky character, or even just a Nashi film in general. It, it, you couldn't go wrong with having this be your first experience. It's a good gateway as you will then go down the slippery slide and into the world of Nashi and, and you're fall down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yes, you will fall down that rabbit hole, but this this is a great way to do it. I agree. Mr. Sullivan. You talked a little bit about the book and, and kind of where you're at with that. What else do you have going on in your world, and where can people find you? Many, many things. As always, I've got too much going on. One of my goals for this next year is to pare down what I'm doing to maybe one or two things rather than four or five or however many I've got going. The easiest place to find me is at stephendsullivan.com. I'm Stephen with a PH like Stephen Strange or just sdsullivan.com, my initials SDS. So sdsullivan.com. The cool things I'm working on, I've got an audiobook that's coming out for Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. Rachel Grubb, who was a terrific actress and reader from the Mimiverse and uh, Atomic Tales, is doing the reading for that. It sounds so good. It's like, oh, wow, I I can be a pretty good writer when Rachel is reading it. <laughs> so that's very exciting. Uh, Atomic Tales is coming out pretty much every month from the Memiverse podcast. So you can check that out. It also appears on my site every month. I am typesetting my modern gothic horror series, Frost Harrow. I've uh, got rough typesets done for the first four of six books. So that's going to be going to beta readers soon. I've got 
the Werewolf's Curse, which is going to get one more rewrite and then approval from my uh, licensor, the Nashi family. I'm not sure if we'll be small publishing or kickstarting or trying to find a big publisher to go with that yet, but that should be out sometime. Knockwood in 2024. And the other thing that's kind of live and ongoing right now is Monster Shark on a Nude Beach, which is for the Kindle Vela format. That whole book is out now, and probably sometime next year, I'll be looking at ebook and print book versions of that as well. And I'm sure there's something I'm forgetting, but was that enough? That was probably more than enough. <laughs> <laughs> like Nashi himself, I have a broad range of interests. Steve, thank you so much for coming on board and, and joining us for the first half of our Nashi November 2. Enjoyed it. Appreciate your time. It's great seeing you guys again and great talking about something I really love, the films of Paul Nashi. Chief Inquisitor Bernard de Fosse and his men ride through the plague-ridden countryside of late 16th century France before setting up shop at a village overrun with witches. Or promiscuous young women that may or may not fly on their broomsticks to dine with Belphegor at Sabat. He meets his match in Catherine, who will sell her soul to the devil to get revenge on whomever killed her fiancé. This sets up a battle between a force of evil performing atrocities in the name of God, and a force of good who's become an ally with the devil. Richard, before we get into Inquisition, we have jumped in time a few years. Why don't you do us a reset and kind of tell us 1977 when this movie came out, what else was going on? If 
chances are we weren't able to see this when it came out. So what were alternative forms of entertainment? I had to go with a date that may or may not match up, as you said, with when the movie was released, because some sources say January 31st, 1977. Other sources say it was January 78. Other sources say it was later in 78. I just picked a date, right or wrong, and went with it and picked that January last weekend of 1977. Let's take a look at the top songs in America, not France, not Spain, for January 29th, 1977. I think you're going to know most of these songs. Before we dive into the top 10, top new songs of the week included So Into You by the Atlanta Rhythm Section and Don't Give Up On Us by David Soul. (laughs) We've talked about on this podcast before. Top rising songs of the week included Carry On Wayward Son by Kansas and Hard Luck Woman by Kiss. Number 10 song for the week, first week in the top 10 for Walk This Way by Aerosmith. Number nine, to show you just how diverse music was back then, we have the love theme from A Star Is Born by Barbara Streisand, also her first week in the top 10. Number eight, Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann's Earth Band, with one of the most misquoted pieces of dialogue in musical history. Number seven, Torn Between Two Lovers by Mary McGregor. Number six, New Kid in Town by the Eagles. Number five, this was a song, actually, of all the songs in the top ten, there was a couple songs that I honestly don't think I've ever heard, and this was one of them. Hotline by the Silvers. Hmm. You said disco, and this is number five. It's the first disco I one. Know. Is it my turn to sing? No, yeah. I will not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Perhaps it's your turn to dance, because at number four, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing by Leo Sayer. Number three, another song that I struggled with a little bit, but I think once I heard it, it's like, okay, Daz by Brick. Hmm. Okay. And Radio Silence. Yep, that's exactly. <laughs> Some of these songs... Just don't ring off, you know, as much as others. Number two, I Wish by Stevie Wonder. Number one, everyone will know this one or should. First week at number one for Car Wash by Rose Royce. There we go. If we were not listening to the radio and we wanted to go to the movies, box office for January 26, 1977, number one the first of an eventual 13 weeks was Rocky. It ended King Kong's five weeks at number one. And of course, King Kong was something we covered way back in episode number one. Other horror films from 1977 included Day of the Animals, Empire of the Ants, Exorcist II, The Heretic, The Hills Have Eyes, Kingdom of the Spiders, Shockwaves, and Suspiria. Now, here's the good stuff. If we were staying home on Saturday night, January 29th, 1977, we had some good things to choose from. Over at NBC, I can't tell you exactly what we had to choose from, but they played Disney movies on Saturday night on NBC. I just didn't have the listing for what was playing that particular night. Something from Disney. 
Over at ABC, we had Wonder Woman, which was in its first season. So it was still set in World War II, which are always my favorite episodes from Wonder Woman. Followed by Starsky and Hutch and Roots Part 7. Over at CBS... Yeah, this is the lineup, folks. This is probably... other. Is this than the one maybe, I've been waiting for ever since we started this podcast? Yes, other than maybe Wonder Woman or whatever, this is where you wanted to spend your night. And I remember watching this with my folks. Saturday nights, you had The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Bob Newhart Show, All in the Family, Alice, and The Carol Burnett Show. There it is. Every one of those shows is iconic. All of these shows are still being played today. A lot of other sitcoms have come and gone. Definitely some cool options, either at the box office or on the radio or on TV. Could you imagine what would we have thought had we watched Inquisition at this time? Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I could look at a woman's breast again the same way. No, 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 no. So, yeah, I would have been not even 10 yet at this point. If I would have watched this, uh, I would have been in trouble. And I probably would have had to go to confession and say five Our Fathers and five Hail Marys for committing some type of sin. Inquisition, not an easy film to find in 1977, as in impossible, as in almost nowhere. But we have it now. How did you watch it, Richard? I watched it on Blu-ray. I think this was a gift from you. I think you gave me this Blu-ray. The Mondo Macabro Blu-ray. And definitely, this is a movie that you should watch on Blu-ray. There's a lot to see in this movie. And if I haven't said it already, I'll say it again. These are two of my favorite Nashi films out of all the Nashi films that I've seen. And, and I thoroughly enjoyed inquisition it's a different film and it's got some intense stuff in it but i definitely enjoyed it was this your first time or had you seen it before first time okay this was my second time however inquisition was the very first paul nashi film i watched on that fateful day october 15th 2017 i was a late comer to nashi but this was a good one to be first because it got me into him Fantastic movie. I really enjoy it. Not one I think if I would have seen these movies first, if these would have been the versions and, and you know, the, the good, crisp, clear picture and the subtitle, if these would have been the first Nashi experience I had, I would have fell in love with Nashi, I think, a lot sooner than I did. This being my first experience, it was a great experience. It was exactly the way the film should be seen, which is why Mondo Macabro is so good. They are getting these Nashi films out and they're getting good quality versions with the subtitles and some extras along the way sometimes. Really is just a golden age for Nashi right now. These films that were so hard to see for so many years are now readily available. Kudos to Mondo Macabro for continuing to surprise us. You mentioned the period of time for Nashi. This was probably coming out of his most prolific i mean in 1973 he made what a dozen movies i i'm not sure i i don't have the list it's a turning point sort of it's the first time he directed a film right it is yes and it's part historical drama with a nashy flair there's no doubt it's horror and it sort of 
comes in the wake of movies like Witchfinder General, Mark of the Devil, The Bloody Judge, The Devils, this whole religious horror type of film. And that's a subject matter I'm very interested in. It's the hypocrisy of religion and then the the horrors that they commit is just, to me, a fascinating I like every one of those movies I mentioned, and I like Inquisition. We were also seeing American films at this point with the whole demonic possessions and, and movies that had kind of the pseudo-religious aspects to it, whether you're talking about The Exorcist or The Omen. Just in the last uh, week or so, I rewatched The Sentinel, which is a movie that I have not seen for quite a few years. And you know, some people love it, some people hate it. I enjoy that movie. Every time I see it, it's always like been so long since I've seen it before. It's like I remember nothing about it. I don't know why I don't watch The Sentinel more, because I enjoy it. The 70s, there was just a lot of it. I think that's a whole subgenre in itself. I mean, you could do a whole series of films. And this one takes a different look because we always hear about no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Well, you're not getting the Spanish Inquisition of this one. You're getting the French Inquisition, which I'll be honest, I think I'd heard multiple Inquisitions going on. So the Spanish Inquisition has a better PR department because you hear that <laughs> about that a lot more. And of course, there's a reason why we're talking about the French Inquisition, because this movie was made in Spain and nothing bad ever happens in Spain. We never had an Inquisition, but France did, and they were horrible. That's why we see 16th century French, French, France. Just to add on to that, it doesn't contradict or anything, but supposedly I read in Troy Howard's book that Nashi was going to do the Spanish Inquisition, but then he was having a conversation with someone and they said, oh, no, no, the French is much more colorful. That's true, because I think it was either that documentary man who saw Frankenstein cry, or maybe it was an extra on this Blu-ray. There's an interview with Nashi, and he talks about that, where he was told, no, no, the Spanish Inquisition was nothing. The French is what you really want to talk about. That's where all the atrocities were. Setting it in France, there's really nothing other than the, the names, I guess, that really makes it feel like we were in France. It really feels like, well, we're in Europe, but to me, at least, it feels more like a bit more of a generic, yes, we're in Europe, but it could be France. It could be anywhere in Europe. Nashi, as director, hires himself to star. I'd probably do the same thing. And he is very good in this. There are plot points that I don't believe are ambiguous, but the way he plays them causes me to ask questions. Oh, did he really do that? Did he really know about that? I think that's due to his performance. It's it's really, really good. And then the ending is just remarkable. I believe if I were to point out a, a scene that demonstrated his acting, it might be the very conclusion of this movie. Oh, yeah. As the plot is moving along, you start to ask yourself some questions. How much is he aware of what's going on and what's real and what's not? There's certainly some questions. Uh, Nashi puts in a really good performance here. One of his best, I think. Clearly, I think that's because this was a bit of a passion project for him. And so Nashi, I think, being that this was his first time as a director, also writing the script and starring in it, he wanted everything to be as perfect as possible. And I really feel like that comes across in, in, the, in the end product. It's a movie that's 
cohesive, which sometimes Nashi films can there can be a struggle. And that's a European film thing, not just Nashi. Sometimes Euro films in general, Euro horror films can be a bit chaotic. They can be a series of events that just kind of scenes and stuff that kind of get thrown together. And you're oftentimes wondering, how did we get from point A to point D? What happened to B and C? It's, we're talking about it, but we didn't see it. And, oh, there's a random breast there to take us off the fact. Shiny object. Yes, we have some plot deficiencies, but here's some nudity for you. And here's some gore. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, well, yeah you end up enjoying it. But then by the end of it, you're sitting there thinking, what did I just watch? I'm not sure what I watched. There's things that should be there, but weren't there. And things that popped up that I have no clue why they were there, but they looked cool. So I'm going to go with it. And this film, there was definitely some stuff that popped up, but I felt like it was really cohesive from beginning to end. There was a story that was told that really made sense right up to the very end. I get the impression that he was able to slow down and spend a little, I don't know this, but he didn't make 12 movies in 1977. So I think he was able to spend a little more time with it. And who knows, a project like this, he could have been working on script-wise for years. Yeah, I think this was a time period where, yeah, his output was slowing down. As you look at what he did in the late 70s and early 80s, this was a transitionary period where he was just so prolific in the early to mid-70s, just cranking films out, da 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 And then now he's slowing down, still doing a lot of work, but in some ways he's more in control of his career, but in other ways he's starting to ease back a little bit. By the time you get to the early 80s, a lot of the style of film that he was doing was falling out of favor, and Nashi started finding himself popping up in more supporting roles. Nashi, you know, is changing now and is finding himself a little bit more on the outside looking in and continued to make films. Everyone always talks about the Nashi films from the late 60s to the 70s and some of the films in the 80s, but they never really talk about the films that he continued to do. Like when you talk about all of the Daninsky werewolf films, like Antropo is one that rarely gets mentioned, is a film that certainly is worthy of being released from Mondo, hopefully at some point, gets a, that film will get a good release, but it just doesn't get talked about much. It is a lesser film. Everyone who has seen it says, yes, it's not as good as the earlier films, because by this point, Nashi is, he's getting hired, as opposed to him really being actively involved in the production. When I said it was a turning point, I also meant to say that I think, except maybe for El Caminante, which comes a couple years later, this really might have been his creative peak. At least of the ones I've seen, I don't think very many of them at all past this point have the, I don't want to say quality, but the effect, the magic maybe, that most of his films up to this point do. El Comandante, is that one available on Blu-ray? It sure is, yep. yep. Always hard to find. I don't know if it's El Comandante, The Traveler. I think there's another name as well. Devil Incarnate. That's another name that it goes by. Yeah. Very similar. In fact, I thought as I put in Inquisition to watch, I was thinking of a particular scene that is not in it. it why don't you watch it in November and write about it to tie into the podcast? Because I think I've decided I'm going to do another Nash in November. I'm not going to do every day. When I did that and watched them every day, I just kind of stopped 
I want to pick up on some of those others that I haven't seen yet. Actually, I had already planned that as well. I said, oh, had did you? Of Nashi Films, and I hadn't quite decided yet what I was doing. Panic Beats is one that just yep, recently. That's one. I actually had this list. It's Devil Incarnate was one that I had. Uh, Frenchman's Garden, which was one that came out in 78. Also, Howl of the Devil, which yep. I can't remember if I'd seen that or not. I know that I have it. I know that I've seen Beast and the Magic Sword May 3 because we, we talked about that. And I really I did enjoy that one quite a bit because it was just different in setting. Yeah, I, I will be covering a, at least a couple of Paul Nashi films in November to add to the podcast. As you're listening to this, if all it goes as planned, you probably have already seen one of those movies on my blog. I talk about the hypocrisy and, and why that's so interesting to me. In this particular one, it really struck me that they're in this village persecuting every beautiful young girl they can, while on the outskirts of town is a real actual hag of a witch practicing, making potions, people going to see her, and they aren't even aware of her existence. Yeah, everyone knows where she's at and, and giving Except her business, but yet the Inquisitors, ever on top of their game, they don't want to pay attention to the old hag. Let's be honest. If you are Inquisitor and here you've got a torture rack and ooh, we're going to get these people naked and we're going to torture them, you've got an old hag over here or you've got the buxom, gorgeous babe over here. Inquisitors weren't crazy. It was like, well, I think I'd rather see her naked. Let's let's see, because I'm sure she's got the devil in her. And if not, she will. The old hag. Yeah, I don't want to mess with that. We'll just leave well, let's, her- let's think about it another way. Which would you rather see the nipple torn off of? Oh, God. A pretty young girl or an old hag? Well, preferably neither. But if you had a choice to see the before, yeah, the buxom babe's going to win out. The old, old hag just needs to stay on the edge of town in her rags and we'll leave her alone. We could do a whole sidetrack on how insane the Inquisition was, no matter where the country was. Bottom line is the Inquisition was madness. And it had nothing, nothing really to do with the goodness of religion. It had everything to do with greed and power and control, which unfortunately has been one of the most negative aspects for organized religion for centuries now. It's nothing new. We don't have inquisitions today, but it still permeates itself through organized religion, the the whole power trip and the greed and stuff had nothing to do with God's work. What's interesting about this movie is usually in movies like this and some of the others, it's very clear that the Inquisitors are the bad guys and there's usually a victim that is totally innocent and that's who we cheer for. Here it kind of twists that a little bit because it takes our heroine who then makes a deal with the devil so there's not really anybody that's good. You yeah. almost feel a little bad, kind of, sort of, for Nashi at the end of the movie, because you kind of feel like, okay, he wasn't necessarily a good person, but really when it comes to Inquisitors, yes, he was spearheading some pretty horrific things, but it seemed as if there was at least some goodness in him, because there was temptation And he was really trying to resist that temptation. He really wanted to stay on what he thought was the right path, the good path. And ultimately, his 
seduced and tricked and sidetracked and then ends up paying the price, the ultimate price at the end of the film. From that aspect, I mean, he's obviously in anguish. He, I don't know what it's called when you whip yourself on the back, but he does that. Yeah. So from the like religious side, yes. But at the same time, he's scheming and manipulating to be with Catherine, which is sort of really outside the whole witchcraft thing. And those acts are despicable to weasel his way in that he will get guardianship of her when her father dies. And this is one of those things that I think was obvious, but the way he plays it, I'm not really so sure. Did he arrange for her fiance to be killed? It's not black and white. She dreams it. And that's who we see in the cloak. But his reaction to being accused of that is, I don't know. It gave me some doubt. You can certainly see him potentially doing it, but he wasn't so blatantly bad. He was not Vincent Price, Witchfinder General level of bad. You know exactly where Vincent Price stands in that movie. This one, he kind of straddles the fence a little bit. It seems like there is some internal struggle there. Going back just a step, you talked about the practice of flogging yourself Self-flagellation. Yes, thank you. Yes, it's the disciplinary and devotional practice of flogging oneself with whips and other instruments that inflict pain because God wants you to, I guess. The other area where I had doubt was at the end when his colleagues, I don't know what you'd call them, are becoming aware of the things he's doing and that he's actually protecting Catherine sort of preventing her from going through the process that everyone else is. It turns out that he gets in trouble for what he's doing. My point with that is that they then accuse him of actually signing a contract with the devil. I don't believe that he did that. I believe that part of what they manufactured to make a case against him. I think Catherine set him up. Okay. Because that was her way to get back at him. Gotcha. She was the one that planted the evidence there. I think he even said something along the line, Catherine, he says something that implies that he knows that he's been set up and she's the one that set him up, but he doesn't even really fight it because I think in his mind, he feels like he failed at his duty. He allowed himself to be seduced and his punishment is just because he strayed from the righteous path. So what they're doing, he didn't fight it. He didn't resist. He didn't try to run. He accepted his fate right up to the very moment as the fire is being set. There was no resistance, no terror, nothing. It was an acceptance, a look of acceptance. The other thing so interesting about that ending, and spoiler alert, they're both burned at the stake side by side, and their reactions are polar opposite. He, like you said, repents. She doesn't. She doesn't say a word. She's happy that she's, you know, she's won in her mind. Yet she suffers more. She screams while she's being burned. Now she doesn't utter a sound. So I think those opposites tell a lot about their true natures, perhaps. Yeah. She was letting that hatred fester inside of her. She couldn't let it go. And I think it's, it points there that, you know, she's kind of told, let it go, you know. And But no, no, she, she is willing to sell her soul to the devil in order to get her revenge. And in many ways, she's damned, right? I mean, she sold her soul to the devil. Not looking good. Her future is is not very rosy. 
But Nashi, if you believe in the concept of heaven and hell, would Nashi be condemned to hell? I don't know. He repented of his sins. He's free. Did he sign his soul to the devil? I don't think he did, right? It was a whole dream sequence. Right. I don't think he did. I, I think because he was set up to make it yeah. look like he had, but he really didn't. And that's the other thing. The, the whole demon dream sequence was weird. And well, she did sell her soul to the devil, but then there's this whole other segment because we do have Nashi dressed as the devil at one point. That part of it to me is still a little hazy. I've read a few things trying to figure out, did I miss something? And I'm not the only one that's a little confused as to what was real, what wasn't. I think there's hope for his character in the afterlife because he's repentant. She's not. He actually sheds a tear, which I think is a subtle moment, but kind of brings everything together. His acting is so good. And then this previous ambiguity and wondering, well, what now? What's going to happen? The whole devil scenes and all of that. And even when she sees that he was the one that killed, that's her perception. That's what she's seeing. And if you're convinced that that is what happened, that's what you're going to see. So we don't know that that's the truth, though. That is her viewpoint. And again, going with the concept of the devil, wouldn't that be the thing the devil would tell you? Well, of course. Mm. Yeah. Of course, the Inquisitor was the one that did this. Here's an image. Take a look. See? See? See what he did? But if you want revenge, all you need to do is sell me your soul and I'll give you the revenge that you want. And she's so blinded, she goes ahead and goes down that path. This is a tight 90-minute movie. We've talked about a lot of things happening, a lot of subject matter. I think it goes fast. Yep. It's the perfect way to squeeze so much content into a digestible running time. It's never slow. It's interesting the whole way. Something I didn't get to say when we talked about the werewolf and we were talking about Euro horror a little bit. I love these movies because of the scenery. And you know, they're in real places. They're not sets. They're really in a castle or they're really in a cottage somewhere in the country. Several of his movies have opened with a sweeping view of the countryside. And in this one, it's the same way. And they're riding down the dusty trail, heading into town plague. We didn't even mention the plague. That's another sort of story that's going on. Yeah, the thing that's happening on the side that ends up right at the very end, too. Yep, the plague has arrived there. Oh, got to go. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, well, we must leave now. One type of plague leaves and another one comes in. Exactly. This was a very well-made film. This was Nashi at his peak. Inquisition is definitely a high spot in his career. There's some brutality to it, absolutely. That nipple being torn off, oh, that's brutal. I knew that it was coming. It was kind of choreographed right before, and I'm like, ooh, something's happening. Are we going to see it? Are we going to see it? It's like, oh, God, we saw it. And Yeah, and it's like, you, and it didn't stop. It lingered in the after effect. Exactly. It wasn't like a quick Which little... I guess you don't bleed if your nipple's torn off. Well, <laughs> obviously in a modern film, if that was to happen, we would probably have so much CGI blood gushing out that it would be the other end of the extreme. You see it coming and you're like, no, they're not going to do that. Yes. And before you can turn away or close your eyes, it happens. And then you're oh, just quick. like stunned and you don't close your eyes or look away because you've already seen it. and. How long is this going to go on? And it goes on longer. They linger in the after yeah. effect for 
longer than I thought. And it's a good effect. Like even it, it gives you time to examine it after they've popped the cork. <laughs> and then <laughs> um oh yeah. God. Yeah, and, and you could like see look study the special effect and it looked real enough to me for the time period absolutely it's it's not a bad effect at all yeah you know we're going to see that in 77 but what you saw though was pretty brutal oh horrific enough yeah horrific enough the torture scenes as well got the one gal on the rack you can just kind of feel it you know my shoulders are tightening up then she dies this is proof that you don't always need to go as graphic as you could sometimes implying that that graphic nature while being graphic in itself, but not crossing that line is just as effective and perhaps even more so. We were seconds away from that flesh being torn, but her body was under enough trauma and stress that that was it. She was done. Very brutal, but very well done. Yep. Anybody in the cast and crew that would mean anything to us? The character of Catherine is played by Daniello Giordano. 42 credits and some pretty interesting titles here that are worth mentioning. Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. Death Walks on High Heels, Four Gunmen of the Holy Trinity, and Sexy Susan Sins Again. So, Daniello Giordano is interviewed as an extra on this Blu-ray. I don't know if you had a chance to watch that or not. She does relay a story about Nashi in reference to one of the co-stars. And I believe she was referring to the character of Elvira or Elvira played by Julia Solly. She kind of implied that Nashi may have been paying more attention to her than... Hmm. I've never heard of any Nashi promiscuity. I mean, he seemed very devoted to his family. When would he have time? Take that for whatever it's worth. She was very beautiful, very stunning, and did quite well on that part. Ricardo Marino played Nicholas Rodier. I believe, if I got the characters right, he was the older assistant to Nashi's character and the one who ultimately becomes the new Grand Inquisitor, Chief Inquisitor. Very prolific career, 94 credits, was also in the movie Dragonfly for a Corpse, or Each Corpse. Each Dragonfly. Corpse, yep. Tony Eisbert, or Isbert, played Pierre Bougeot. He played the younger assistant, also prolific, 92 credits, was in Cross of the Devil and the Dracula Saga. Monica Randell played Madeline, very prolific as well, 122 credits, including Cross of the Devil and Witch's Mountain, which I believe Mondo just recently released that movie. That kind of caught my eye as something that I might be interested in. Julia Sali played Elvira, only in 16 films, but definitely prolific because she was in Demon Witch Child, Night of the Seagulls, People Who Own the Dark, Frenchman's Garden, Night of the Werewolf, Panic Beats. Now, she used her a lot in several films that he was in, so does that add credence to Daniela's suspicions? I don't know. That's up to you to decide. Antonio Aranzo played... Renover, the creepy manservant who seemed to be just wanting to tattletale on everybody. And, oh, let's throw in this random scene of him picking up some clothes as naked women are frolicking in the water. 85 films, including Who Can Kill a Child. Fantastic movie, yes. 
One more here. Juan Luis Gagliardo played Jean Duprat, Dupre, Catherine's lover, the one who gets offed in a flashback or weird sequence. Incredibly prolific career, 176 films. Fernando Florido did the special effects, including the demon Belfagor, which I thought was incredibly well done. Very, very well done sequence. As far as the release date, when so much contradiction on this, it was filmed in May and June of 1976. Everyone seems to be consistent with that. IMDb says it had a release on January 31st, 1977, and then January 1978. Troy Howarth says in his book that it was released in May 1977. Wikipedia says it wasn't shown in Spain until 1978. So... Somewhere between January of 77 and somewhere in 78, the film was seen. It hasn't really been widely seen until now. It's availability on Blu-ray by the first time that it's available for the largest potential audience. On Blu-ray from Mondo Macabro and currently selling for less than $20. It's still in print. Very easy to add to your collection. Highly recommend it. If you've not seen an Ashy movie, watch this, and it could very well make you want to watch more. And if you have seen an Ashy movie and haven't seen this, if you want to see what he's really capable of and, and raise the level just a little bit, check it out. Any way you go, watch it. I think it's oh. well worth it. Yes. Highly recommend it on my end as well. Let's take our final break then. Come back and wrap up with some new business. Paul Nashi was a Spanish actor, writer, director, producer who made well over 100 feature films in Spain and specialized in fantasy and horror. Paul was uh, uh, outdoes out everybody, outdoes Christopher Lee, outdoes Boris Karloff and they, in, in playing all of these characters, I mean, everybody from Jack the Ripper to the Hunchback to, I mean, he, he, Paul played all of them. Paul Nashi was a very serious actor and also a movie fan. Count Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, Fu Manchu, the mummy, the hunchback, Mr. Hyde, and of course, a wolfman known as Valdemar Daninsky. Working under his pseudonym, Paul Nashi, Jacinto Molina gave life to all these characters, and in the process, terrified, entertained, and delighted generations of movie audiences around the world. But behind the films and the many fascinating characters he incarnated, was a man whose own life story could have been a movie. I invite you now to meet that man, the man behind the werewolf's mask. It's the story of a true horror film legend, the story of Paul Nashi, El Hombre Lobo, the Spanish Lon Chaney. Richard, there's a few home video releases of note that I wanted to bring up. First of all, Synapse is releasing Blood Feast. This is not the original Blood Feast. This is supposedly a remake from 2016. I mention this because the original is, of course, by Herschel Gordon Lewis, the godfather of gore, and a recent episode of Discover the Horror podcast did a retrospective of Herschel Gordon Lewis, and it's well worth listening if you want to learn more about the man and his movies. We also have coming out from Raro Video, 
I'm not sure why, number one, that it is significant, but I have a question related to it. It's called The Perfume of the Lady in Black from 1974, and it stars Mimsy Farmer. Now, why is Mimsy Farmer a familiar name? Do you know? No, I, I saw that this was coming out, and there should probably be a little asterisk because Raro Video is now partnered up with somebody. Oh. Is it Kino Lorber, I think, is actually handling their distribution. Raro Video was an, another one of these labels that popped up. I think as, as a label, it looked like they were kind of <laughs> the equivalent of pod fading. They were kind of just going quiet. A lot of their films on their site had gone out of print. It seems like I read that there was a partnership maybe with Kino Lorber that was going to start bringing some of their films back into availability, but it was going to be distributed by Kino Lorber. Speaking of Kino Lorber, I messaged you when I saw this. I thought you might have some degree of excitement. The Questor tapes from 1974. Why might you be interested in that? Uh, I don't know. Is a Star Trek possible reference? There? <laughs> yes. One of Gene Roddenberry's attempts in the 1970s to start a new series, much like Planet Earth, Genesis 2, Strange New World. I think in a different era, we would have gotten a series from the Questar tapes, but we didn't. Some themes in that certainly come into play with the character of Data in Star Trek The Next Generation. Roddenberry was still percolating on the ideas, and I have not seen the Questar tapes in a long time. Definitely want to see it again. It must not have been available when I was doing TV Terror Guide. 70 TV movies, because I don't recall watching it. Oh, let's see, Severin. They are bringing out a new deluxe version of Count Dracula, the 1970 Christopher Lee, supposedly more faithful to the novel, like some movies claim to be, but aren't really. (laughs) And then a movie, Dr. Butcher, MD. So this is something that I have seen back in the video store days. You probably remember the cover box. I've said before about how some movies just didn't appeal to me and I never watched it. I learned that this was another name for a movie called Zombie Holocaust, which I don't know why, but I have in my mind that that's significant for some reason. There's a reason to watch it from 1980. Little pricey from Severin, but the Blu-ray of Dr. Butcher, Butcher, MD, don't remember what label, is on sale and available for Amazon for a much cheaper price. Two titles don't seem related at all. It's... They don't, but that's the wonder of so many films from that time period. Severn is also releasing Danza Macabra Volume 2. The first set I was not entirely thrilled with. This one seems even more odd. Castle of Blood, Barbara Steele, but that's available on anything. I don't know what's different about that because Severn put that out already. It's out, already yeah. been out on Blu-ray. Unless they found a better print of it, which is possible. New feature, something. Jekyll from 1969 was a television miniseries. That would be interesting. Not enough for me to buy the box set. They Have Changed Their Face from 1971, I believe is a Dracula or vampire story. However, it's also an allegory on capitalism. The one, though, that most interested me is just because it seems like a good old down and dirty Euro horror, The Devil's Lover from 1972. Rich, you should be thrilled if you don't have it on any of the number of ways this public domain movie is available. Film Masters is putting out a Blu-ray of The Terror, and it is paired with Little Shop of Horrors. 
I have a Blu-ray of The Terror, and it was leaps and bounds better than the public domain version that circulated for years. I'm like, I don't know how they could make The Terror look any better. I'm puzzled as to why they're putting that out, because I thought it was still readily available on Blu-ray. And my last one is coming from VCI Home Entertainment. We are going to talk about this much more next month, but heads up if you want to get a head start on your movies for January, Horrors of the Black Museum from 1959 is coming out on Blu-ray. That's all we're going to say about that right now. Rich, you got a couple other things to add? Yes, I do. So earlier in this episode, we talked about Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf as a film that was not available and a film that needed a Blu-ray release. Because this episode was recorded in two different sessions and has been recorded several weeks ahead of when it's going to be actually released, I think, at this point. In the meantime, Mondo Macabro decided to announce this past week that, hey, guess what? Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf is coming out on Blu-ray. As we record this, they've already had their pre-Halloween flash sale on the bundle, which included that movie along with several other films. And by the time you heard this, the movie itself has gone on sale individually on Halloween. I don't know if the movie will still be available when you hear this or not. Always kind of unpredictable. I know that there's 2,000 copies of the limited edition. That's where you get the nice, cool little red case. And I think it's going to come with a slip cover and all sorts of cool extras with it. No brainer for when I saw that. I'm like, oh, got to get it. Hopefully, it'll still be available by the time you hear this. If for some reason the limited edition is sold out, Mondo always then has a traditional version, which is usually a different cover and just a blue case. All the other stuff usually is the same, all the extras and stuff. Give us an update on The Bat. The Bat had a Kickstarter campaign, and it did incredibly well. There hasn't been any stretch goals added. Ben Modell has been very quick to say there may be more added later on. Let's wait and see. As he's learned from campaigns, this is the goal. But along the way, things pop up that require extra money. Sometimes a better print of something is found. There's something extra here or something there. So there may be a stretch goal added later on. If not, we definitely will be getting the bat in a fully restored version And that'll be hopefully coming out in time for Halloween next year. I want to close with one anniversary. Very appropriate for today. And we haven't mentioned it. This may even be the reason why we did the first Nashi November. But Mr. Paul Nashi, he died on November 30th, 2009 at the age of 75. Kind of hinted on things we're doing on our blogs. Anything you want to talk about here for the month of November? You know, coming off of the craziness that the countdown (laughs) to Halloween can be, doing 31 consecutive days of post, which usually ends up being like 32 or 33, depending if I do the pre-post and then the post-post, which I've already kind of thought I'm doing a post on November 1st to just to kind of reflect on our guests that we've had on the show. Five consecutive weeks of podcasting, something we've never done as well. November will be a little quieter. (laughs) I'll be focusing on at least a couple of extra Nashi films that I haven't seen, but I want to see and and share out a quick review on those films on the blog. 
that's what's happening in my neck of the woods. What about you? I think I might as well watch some other Nashy movies for just a weekly review in the yeah. month of November. Since this is probably the middle of November, we'll see if I did that or not. But that's my intention. And I think that's it. We started off this year back in January with It's a Disaster Part 2. That seems to be one of our more popular themes that we do. And we've talked about doing Part 3 in early 2024. But why not Disastrous December? We are going to be doing two disaster films next month on the show. Sticking in that sweet spot of the 1970s, that was just a disastrous decade. We are going to be doing The Hindenburg from 1975, released on Christmas Day. So that kind of syncs up in a there you go. kind of way. To George C. Scott, two George C. Scott movies in a matter of months. That's kind of cool. The Hindenburg, if you are doing your homework, is available to rent on a variety of services, including Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It is not streaming for free anywhere, so you're going to have to rent or perhaps make a purchase because it is available on Blu-ray from Universal, and you can get it for less than $15. The second film we'll be watching is Black Sunday from April 1st, 1977, starring Robert Shaw and Bruce Dern. I love Bruce Dern. He is always just the perpetual bad guy. Literally just a couple days ago, I watched him on an old episode of The High Chaparral. And guess what? He played the villain of the piece. Black Sunday is available to rent on Amazon Prime and Apple TV, but it is available to stream for free or if you are a subscriber to Amazon Prime and Paramount Plus. So it's also available on Blu-ray from Arrow for less than $20. So also something you can easily add to your collection without breaking the bank. Next month, it's a disastrous December part three, whatever we call it, the Hindenburg and Black Sunday. I cannot wait. Anything else before we close out? No, I think this has been a lot of fun. Thank you to all the new members and all the new listeners. I'm curious as to how you're discovering the show. We appreciate each and every new member and look forward to continuing to add new members. Love to find out how you discovered the show and your thoughts on what we do and what you would like to hear us do in the future. Unlike a mobile phone company, we do also appreciate our existing customers slash members. Thank you to anyone and everyone who listens. We do truly appreciate it. We will come back and do it again next month. So we'll see you then. Take care, everyone.